this is uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben off the cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue, Blue podcast. podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, of the London is Blue podcast. One of your hosts, Dan, here, and this is another one of the episodes that we're doing with our good friend Sam, also known as CFC Central, talking about targets at the World Cup players that Chelsea may or may not or should or shouldn't be looking at as it relates to who are they going to get to reinforce, bolster the side to allow Graham Potter to achieve unparalleled success in the short, mid, and long term at Chelsea. But Sam, welcome back. And before we get into those targets, I have to ask, as someone who was there who made the trip to Abu Dhabi to watch the Chelsea men's team play in their mid-season, preseason match against Aston Villa. How was it? How did you enjoy it? And do you have any highlights, recollections, or things that you want to share with the audience? Hey, Dan. So, so lovely to be back. I think you and I are going to see a lot of each other until the season gets underway. And I'm, I'm for one, I'm not complaining at all. So it's lovely to be here. Um, yes, made the trip all the way from India to, to Abu Dhabi uh, to see the match and. I've been dreaming of this day ever since I've been a, a Chelsea fan. And to be honest, I couldn't care less who was starting or who was on the bench. I was just happy to be there. And uh, came away with a lot of experiences, you know, just sitting with Chelsea fans from all over the world and and bonding about the club and and watching, obviously, the next gen deliver and, and watch them put in some really good performances against a near st- a full strength Villa side was, was incredible. I think a couple of things that stood out for me, obviously, Omari Hutchinson, Everybody's been raving on about him. Uh, Reese James, Wesley Fofana put up some stories saying, you know, he's probably just announced his arrival in the big time. And watching him um, in person was was incredible. I think there was this one spell where he completely switched to his weaker foot and he was dribbling with it. He was he was trying to cut inside on his right foot. He was um, he was rolling the ball on his right foot. I think he even took a corner with his right foot. And I was like, what in the world is he doing? He's supposed to be a left-footed guy. And I... I there were no shirt uh, names on there. There were only numbers. So for a moment, I was flummoxed. Maybe I was like reading the wrong player, but it was actually Omari doing all those things. So it was incredible to see him trying out those things in a game, which obviously would have been important for him personally to to make sure that he was making the right kind of impression on Graham Potter. But it was amazing to see. So um, Omari Hutchinson for me stood out. Lewis Hall looked so, so at home against a, a very physical Villa side. Loved the way he was applying himself and really appreciated the fact that I could see all 22 players at once, for once, you're not staring at a screen. And uh, really, I think I got the insight, the first-hand insight that, you know, games like this, why scouts or why analysts prefer seeing the entire game. So, Lewis Hall, for me, was amazing. Off the ball, the amount of application that he had, the amount of aggression that he would want from, from a midfielder. He also played at centre-back, then he moved to left-back, all over the field and, and doing really well. So, Youngsters definitely making an incredible impression and uh, got Charlie Webster to sign my shirt. I mean, what else could <laughs> be a happier end to, to that trip? So really, really happy and shout out to Charlie if you're listening. Thank you so much. It meant the world to, to a Chelsea fan who's been waiting for this for a decade and a half. So thanks a lot, my friend. Well, we are so glad. I am so glad that you had that opportunity, Sam, to watch the game, even if it was not a good evening for our Chelsea team in terms of a victory, but getting to see some of the up-and-comers, the Chelsea Academy products who are getting a chance to 
test themselves out under Graham Potter, who is a little under-resourced at the moment with several of his players still on international duty or getting on break after finishing their international duties during the World Cup. And that is what we're here to talk about. We're talking about some of the players, again, who are continuing to either impress or players that we've earmarked as individuals that we might want to do some additional diligence on as it relates to being a top target for Chelsea, or maybe have they shown over a couple of matches that maybe they've fallen down a little bit of that pecking order of who we would want to consider, who we hope Chelsea as a new brain trust operating transfer negotiations and targeting that we go after. And so we can just go into it, Sam, and off the top, we can talk about someone who's continuing to go deeper and deeper into the tournament, but it's Endo Fernandez, who, with the Argentinian side, is advanced into the semifinals. Yeah, he's been extremely impressive, and I think uh, Argentina are better for it. I think they look like a more cohesive side. Um, when we talked last time, we were obviously talking about how we're seeing him in a slightly different role, I would say. He's probably best as as somebody like an N'Golo Kante. You know, you want him to to rely on his instincts. You want him to go and have a little bit of freedom to go into the attacking third and put passes into the box. He's very good um, with his passing range. So he often switches it to players at Benfica. He's able to to also give you the occasional long-range shot. So he's he's done that in this World Cup as well. But in a defensive midfield position, I think we are seeing a slightly restrained version of the actual Enzo Fernandez. So I think there is more that, that could be bought out of him. It's just he's being used a little judiciously. But he's still doing a very, very good job. I was I was really surprised to see when I was reading up on the reports and the numbers that he's generating pretty good to see how he's adapted and with the maturity that he's playing you know he's not trying to apply himself in a different role as the deepest midfielder in a three he's he's willing to make that sacrifice let McAllister and let Rodrigo de Paul do do the dirty work and then try to make inroads but been very impressed with him so far yeah he definitely has seemed to be an individual who's impressed has a little bit of that ability to contribute uh, both in the attacking and defensive phases which has been you know, if you're hoping that Messi wins a World Cup, that you're probably very happy to see the way that he's contributed. If you're someone who's hoping that they bounce out or do not want to see Messi win a World Cup, then you might not be happy with the way that he's contributing to this Argentinian side at the moment. But I think as we're starting to see now links, rumors, people putting on Twitter that maybe there's even, I think as of today, a... Argentinian outlet, which I don't know the veracity of their standing, where they would be in a transfer rumor ranking, talking about how there's a pre-pre-agreement coming down the line with Liverpool, which would be really difficult because Liverpool are also trying to sell themselves right now, so it'd be very hard to agree. So let's just table that one for later. But you're starting to see individuals get linked to clubs and getting linked for high dollar amounts, potentially in the triple digits in the 100 million range for someone like Fernandez at the moment. Sam, do you think he's worth something like that? And obviously that's a hard question to answer, but do you think he's worth something like that fee or, and do you think Chelsea, are, are we still putting him as a top two, top three individual that you would want us to go after in midfield? To be honest, Dan, I mean, it's, we're seeing 
those kind of prices being mentioned for for young players that are i think on the verge of exploding into a world class player i think we looked at it from shuamani's perspective as well when you looked at him you could obviously see that he was just on the brink probably going to be 6 months a year away from from showing his his absolute best in midfield and real madrid took that chance they paid the big money and uh, they got their dividends and and we're seeing that in the world cup as well so i think it's now going to come down to who are the two three best options in central midfield it's not really um you know um, a buyers market to be honest there are a couple of options when you look at at the right side you probably would look at enzo fernandez and say jude bellingham and arguably both are being priced at around 100 150 million because the other quality options that you see there are probably a notch notch and a half below uh, those two options and both have been linked to liverpool as well as chelsea so the agents are working overtime the rumor mill is going in full flow but i think it's just the price for a young player that people want to sort of optimize on and to make sure that you know you are you are buying good quality and after that if you're willing to pay 50 million you probably are gambling on whether that person or that player can make an equally successful transition from say a lower league to to the premier league so you might as well pay the big bucks and go for for certified quality rather than take that gamble yeah that to me feels like it's the conversation of Chelsea past where we wouldn't stump up for option 1 or we might get misguided with the option 1 that we go after and because of that we potentially spend a little less on option 2a to b or maybe even a third option below at a much much lower market rate because we're trying to buy across multiple positions and I think we've talked about this over the past couple episodes. If you haven't heard those ones, go back and listen to them. Sam and I have done two prior to this one, which kickstarted our little bit of an investigation into players Chelsea might want to target during the World Cup. But with that said, you might have two, three individuals that you want to add in midfield. If you lose a Jorginho, if you lose an Angolo Conte, you're running down Kovacic's con- contract. You're most likely going to want to try to find a way to extend him as well. So there's definitely going to be a need for more than one individual to come into that midfield grouping, and that to me feels like I don't know. Could you theoretically spend another three hundred million next summer and potentially get two, three? midfielders as a part of that that's it's going to be hard to negotiate with the types of midfielders you're going after which it's great in concept that Chelsea's going to be linked to Fernandez going to be linked to Rice going to be linked to Bellingham but as you start to add up the numbers and the outgoings are freeze it is going to become a little bit of uh financial Nightmare. modeling <laughs> <laughs> management <laughs> um financial artistry with those excel documents to really figure out actually mm-hmm. how you put this into place and i think that's going to be maybe the big challenge for someone like fernandez who he might not i i don't know i think he would be a great option but is he the chelsea target number 1 or 2 or is he within that like grouping of 4 or 5 where if he isn't available at a lower price you might see him maybe price out of a move because we are going premium across all purchases we're trying to make absolutely and i i think the last game between between the argentines and the dutch i think it gave you a very good sense of two chelsea linked 
probably world-class midfielders going head-to-head. When you look at Frankie de Jong, who's had a very good tournament as well for the Dutch, he's quietly been one of the best players. So, um, it was interesting for me to go back and see how both of them compare. And you and I know, Dan, the kind of numbers that, that de Jong was going for in the summer. You know, they wanted 90, 85 million, and then you had to pay about 350 a, a week for his wages. Yeah. Um, so, when when I was watching the game and I was seeing what... what Fernandez was offering from a slightly deeper position. It was in- incredible to see. In terms of, I think, physical output, both were incredible. They they both covered about 15 kilometers, which was first and second uh, across the 22 players. So great engines. Um, Enzo Fernandez for for Argentina from DM uh, attempted the most line breaking passes. So he attempted 18. Uh, and he was, I think, the second for the most line-breaking passes completed. So he was offering a lot of his penetration from a deeper position. He was offering uh, himself up as the first person in build-up, which is something that you want to see from your deepest midfielder when you talk about a Jorginho and his ability in the first phase because he always invites pressure. He always is willing to collect the ball when there are like three or four players around and willing to press him. That kind of fearlessness, that kind of courage... I had my diet, diet sort of doubts about whether Enzo could do that at international level, at at a higher level from what he's been playing in in the Portuguese Liga. But uh, against against the Dutch, he made 94 offers to receive, and then that's 94 times that he was showing for the ball and asking for the ball to be played at feet. And 40 of those times, I think he received it. Um, so it, it's it just shows for you that he's also got that you know ruthlessness in terms of I want to be involved. I'm not going to hide in the big games. And when you look at De Jong with the same numbers, he was at 124. So you you get a picture of what these midfielders are. Both of them are are willing to be involved in the first phase. Both of them love linking, carrying the ball from from midfield to attack. So two very very good midfielders. Two midfielders probably in the same price range. And it gives you a good comparison in terms of um, what you're getting with that kind of money. And I could probably say there are two or three other options that would be significantly less pricey. But uh, again, it would be whether they could deliver on the same level as these two guys. That makes plenty of sense. And maybe as we start to talk about the Dutch side, we can transition to talking about one attacker who wasn't able at the very end to make a noticeable impact in his final game, but had a very bright start to the tournament in Cody Gakpo. I know that he had uh, a fair bit of firepower on display and uh, maybe got off to a unsustainable start in, in really with the Dutch side going out in, you know, it's really our last time of this series that we'll talk about him, but who knows if we'll talk about him in future episodes as a target. But what did you see as the tournament came to an end? Because I feel like I'm trying not to judge it based upon the total Dutch performance. I'm trying to look at it from the individual performance of Gakpo. But I almost wonder, is the is this Dutch side and the way that Van Hall sets up actually putting him in a position to be as successful as he has been for his domestic and club side? Or... Are we maybe taking a look at this and in isolation, this actually would be more like he, he would have to play at Chelsea. And I, I kind of wanted to, hear, to get your thought on that, Sam. It's just like, how should we expect him you know, as a potential candidate? A, how would you feel he rounded out the end of his tournament? And, and how do you 
take his play over the tournament, contrast that to his time uh, at PSV, and determine is is the PSV version more accurate? Is the Netherlands version more accurate? Particularly as, as we think about him in in Chelsea Blue. And that's that's an extremely good question, to be honest. And and I think both both of us sort of had that discussion in the last pod, talking about how there were signs about his influence and how it might not be translating well enough between his time at PSV and versus what role he's playing at the Dutch side. So we were talking about him not getting on the ball enough, not having enough touches, not having enough receptions in the right zones. Because when you look at him play for PSV, he's receiving in the right places, places where he can create a lot of havoc. And probably like his three goals sort of overshadowed the fact that he wasn't getting um, the right kind of service. He probably wasn't, he was sort of living off moments rather than making a more definitive kind of contribution. So for me, it was it was interesting to see that kind of come into practice. He struggled against um, the Argentines in the last match. I think he was the Dutch midfielder, Dutch outfielder with um, the second fewest amount of passes after Steven Bergwijn. He only had 25, completed 18. So it just looked to me as if like he was he was trying to offer the best that he could in the circumstances. He was the archetype Chelsea attacker who was sacrificing a little bit of their own style to try and, and give something to the unit, but ultimately not being able to provide the right kind of application to it. So um, I think it's also partly down to his own performances, his own limitations also coming into play. Um, defensive work, for example, no tackles won, only six pressures. But again, you wouldn't want an attacker who's sitting slightly deeper in a Dutch midfield system to to sort of make those kind of aggressive presses. He was trying to find receptions and make sure that he was making the, the team work rather than try to get on the ball himself. Uh, what surprised me when I was getting on the numbers was that he actually helped progress the ball more than anybody else in the Dutch side. And that's not what you want him to do. You know, he's not somebody who progresses the ball very often. He's supposed to be at the end of those passes rather than somebody who's doing the work. But just the way the game's set up with Messi being in the same zone as him, not being as defensively adept and, and sort of like not pressing him. He was able to fall into those gaps, make sure the ball was moved to Bergwijn and Depay, and then sort of like figure out what he could do from there. But I think it was a mix of individual limitations and, and the team's limitations finally coming together and showing you that he still has a long, long way to go. Yeah, I know when you called out in the script we put together here where he had five take-ons and zero were successful do you view that more as the opposition he was going up against, that he was just going up against really, really talented players? Or was it more how he was getting the ball at those certain points of time? Because I, I think maybe that's where someone also might look at the fact that, well, he has been explosive. He does a better job with take-ons in the domestic league. Is that, again, going back to the structure of the team or maybe just the the quality of opposition step up, which might be something as we think about evaluating him in terms of a player that could be going into the Premier League, would that be a little bit of a step up and an adjustment period for him that we should potentially think about as well? No, definitely. I think, like like we mentioned, there were certain factors that when you look at it, you were like, maybe he should be putting in more. He Maybe his his numbers need to be better. Maybe his, his output needs to be better. And against an Argentinian side that, again, had three centre-backs, 
um, and, and three aggressive ones when you're playing against, say, Martinez and then playing against Romero, who are stepping up high, making sure that they prevent you from, from getting enough space to turn. He did struggle against a, a very good offense and, and a very good defense as well. So he was getting suffocated by Rodrigo de Paul when he was dropping deep. So you could see that there were certain things that obviously experience brings a higher league, uh, a higher level of league and, and better experience brings in terms of adapting to those scenarios. But I think he he should have, you know, I think in at this point in time, I would want to see a, a more definitive stamp on games. I, I don't see that from Gakpo. I would want him to sort of, when things are not going your way, what do you do? Like, where is the ruthlessness? What What measures do you take in terms of being proactive? I think he's somebody who's, uh, happy to receive, you know, same complaint that we we have with the likes of Leao, who like, you know, who will wait on the left-hand side, wait for the ball to come to you at feet and then do some kind of damage. To be that one-dimensional in the Premier League, is it going to work out? Who knows? Like, with somebody like Leao, I probably would say yes. You know, he's got the the quality, he's got the end product to probably make that work. But in the bigger games, when when you're going up against the likes of Manchester City, who are pinning you back, would want all your 11 players to put in a defensive shift. Can you rely on that kind of a player? And my answer is no. So, I think it has to be risk assessment. It has to be trying to figure out if that balance is right and, and if he's got enough skills to survive and thrive in the Premier League. Right now, I would say it, it is a big, big gamble. So, we've we made that assessment earlier in the pod. Yeah. And I think that sort of translated into, into what we've seen. So it just, I think he had a bad day and probably had chose the wrong day to have a bad day. But those are the cons of being uh, being a young player. Well, potentially then a no for Gakpo as it stands, a player that seemingly would fit better in an offense that's already firing and successful and not maybe struggling in the way that Chelsea's offense is currently limped along, uh, particularly with the lack of Reese James on the right-hand side to kickstart a, a fair number of our attacks. But we're going to take a real quick break, and then we're going to get into another name that Sam just mentioned in Rafael Leal and a few others. So uh, stick around, and we'll be right back after these message from our sponsors. If you're bored of the U.S. Netflix, why not just take it for a spin in the U.K.? Using NordVPN and a click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favorite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you with over 5,000-plus server options. No show is out of your reach. Using my link, nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue, you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan plus one free month. We all love to binge, but look, privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an affected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Don't forget, there's literally no risk when you use our 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue you a refund. You can pretend the entire situation never happened check out my link again that's nordvpn.com forward slash london is blue to get your subscription started today all right sam so another individual that we talked about another attacking player who is on their way home after getting knocked out in 
quite wild fashion. Um, not maybe what people would have anticipated in the earlier part, but Liao comes in, has an opportunity mostly as a impact sub. Uh, he's definitely not the individual that they were kind of putting there or pinning their hopes on from an attacking perspective. But compared to the role he plays for AC Milan and the central you know role that he plays and the impact that he has on their attack, how did you find his overall usage and how much of your opinion of him has or hasn't changed based upon his time during the World Cup? So the last board, I think we were talking just before the Switzerland game. And uh, I think I, I sort of predicted that if Ronaldo is benched by Santos, you would either see Felix play up front and Leao on the left, or you would probably see Gonzalo Ramos start. And that's what happened. You got Gonzalo Ramos and Felix was sort of preferred on the left-hand side. And um, I mean, when you when you get a 6-1 win against, I think, the top 15 side in the world, then you probably want to stick with that formula. You don't want to tweak it too much. Uh, the chemistry is there, so you would want to probably go into the next game uh, with the same players. And I think that's what factored into Santos's thinking. And he said, you know, let's just go with Felix and, and Ramos. And ultimately, it sort of came crashing down. The game plan just didn't work. Ramos's limitations in terms of like his movement, in terms of coming up against a very physical side that limits spaces. It just looked like he was struggling for service. Felix had a very, very bad game. He just looked completely out of sorts. And he's been wildly inconsistent during his career. So you would then ask the question, it's very easy in hindsight to say, why wasn't Liao starting those games? But I think when everything is considered, you really can't blame the manager for for sticking to a winning formula and saying that I'm going to trust these players because they've delivered an extremely good win. And the shot that Liao scored uh, against Switzerland had a 2% chance of going in. So you did see, I mean, in terms of what he could offer, and he's always like showed that in glimpses and flashes. And arguably, if um, the footballing gods had their way, he he deserved a start. He deserved definitely to be there. But again, the other limitation is he as effective as, from the right hand side, and I would say no. He's again very monodimensional in the sense that you either put me in the in the left hand side or you allow me to drift centrally and and try to do something in the half space lanes, but not as effective on the right-hand side. So that probably is his downfall. Not not enough defensive work, not being able to um, to offer a lot more than, than receiving ball at feet and then causing that amount of damage. So unfortunately limited to, to an impact sub role, um, but just goes to show the kind of damage that he does from that role. You know, against uh, Morocco, he came on, I think with 21 minutes left and he completed more crosses than anybody else on either side. So it just shows that he's extremely good, but can he do it from a start? Can he provide that kind of balance that comes on protecting the left-hand side, especially when Cancelo didn't play, but can you make sure that when your full fullbacks are marauding forward, especially somebody like Rafael Guerrero, can you protect him? Are you willing to, to go back and, and do the dirty work? And those questions are, are definitely hanging in the air. But in terms of his impact in attack, I don't think anybody has any kind of complaints or any kind of doubts about how good this guy is. But he needs to know that he's now approaching the peak of his career. And if he needs to be a world-class winger, he definitely needs to develop those defensive traits and, and the understanding of the dark arts as well. Do you think part of it, and not trying to give anybody a free pass, but coming in as a sub trying to show that they can make an impact, particularly on trying to move from 
substitute to start or substitute getting 20 minutes to substitute getting 30 minutes or potentially in that nature has hindered how much defensive contribution he might have been willing to or put on offer as a part of this because I mean, we had a Portugal side, particularly in the last match, that really was struggling in a variety of different ways. And it almost was a desperation from the entirety of the team. Uh, I mean, I guess how much latitude do you want to provide in that part of your assessment? Or or how are you thinking about that? Um, To be honest, I would say that there are certain moments that stick in your memory longer than others. So when I looked at the game against South Korea, something that I mentioned last time as well, the moment that he slipped and lost the ball, just rolled around on the turf, did not get up, did not track the South Korean attacker back. And it led to a pretty good opportunity, you know, which could easily have led to to another goal. So I think when when a manager and you're you've got so many people with eyes on those little details in terms of is this person doing the responsibility that they should off the ball, I think it's hard to miss. It's definitely those things stand out, you know, as a as a sore detail. So Definitely that must have factored in again. Like he was getting, you know, he started off at 10 minutes, then he got 20, then he got 30. So he he was building up minutes, but then again, got relegated to to lesser minutes. Again, 21 against Morocco. So why wouldn't you bring him on when you when you know that Morocco don't have their three out of their back four? You know, they were missing the main main players and then a lot of injuries and cramps coming in. So you would obviously want somebody like him, especially with with Hakimi there, who's already trying to to offer some kind of a counter-attacking initiative, why wouldn't you get somebody like him uh, on the field quicker? But those are all, again, questions saying, you know, it's easy to say in hindsight for me that, oh, these are the numbers. When I look at his defensive work against Morocco, I think he won four out of his five ground duels. So you could say that he worked pretty hard defensively. But is it too little too late? And should he have displayed that against the likes of South Korea in the group stages to earn a spot in the knockouts rounds. I think that's the case. But um, I think, you know, he's he's at home at a place like Milan who's willing to indulge his his luxuries. You know, they've, they're willing to give him the ball and make sure that he does his thing in the attacking third. Not many top sides are willing to do that. And if he wants to play for them, especially for the kind of money that's being quoted for him, I think the club, whichever club is trying to buy him needs to demand that from him first and foremost. All very fair points and uh, definitely will beg the question of how much are you willing to stump up as it were for a player who does have some areas of their game that they need to work on, but also a younger player. And so we would anticipate that anyone is going to have a need to round out their game, particularly when you're looking at coming to Chelsea, but maybe that's why, um, would you say that's why someone like Nkuku is a better initial target for Chelsea to go after because of the way that they are or how their their how complete their game is or isn't at this point in time? Maybe just to contrast thinking about the fact that Chelsea are long rumored at this point now to have Nkuku as a Chelsea player at the start of next season. Um, is that something maybe you would think about too is like, how well will this person, uh, will they or won't they pair with them from an attacking standpoint? For sure. I mean, um, probably we are looking at it from a perspective that, you know, when you've got somebody like a um, a Chilwell or a Kukureya protecting the likes of whoever the left winger is in terms of offering them a platform, then you'd probably want to say it's a safe bet to have somebody like a layout. So maybe the club is making that kind of a, a concession for him. It's just, I think the... Um, extremely overcritical part of me that wants a, person, a player coming in to be 
completely ready and not be reliant on other players to to give you a platform to shine. I think you should be able to do that yourself. I think you've brought a very pertinent example in Nkunku, somebody who offers an incredible amount of pressures. I think when when the last pressing stats were available, I'm just going by memory, he was exerting somewhere around 23 pressures, 24 pressures a game. That's about Mason Mount kind of territory. So he works really, really hard when, when the ball is sort of lost and he offers that kind of coming deep, making sure that he collects. And he has that part of his game where he's he recognizes that if he falls back, he can start attacks from there and he can run towards the box from deeper positions where it's harder to detect him. So I think those little details of of trying to attack the box from deeper are more finessed in in Nkunku. And when I look at somebody like a Kwitsakwarat Skelia, for example, who's who's just like Leao, a left winger, I think he's far better in terms of how aggressive he is when he's defending. He likes that part of the game. He wants to go there, do the dirty work. He wants to get stuck in. He also recognizes the fact that, you know, when you're dragging your markers deeper, you have more space to run into. You have you have the passing range to try and bring other players into, into play, especially when you've got somebody like a Victor Orsiman who loves running into space. So why would you spend the same amount of money on a layout than you would spend on a Kwaratskhelia is my question. Especially when Nkunku also plays in that left side position. So those are the questions. And I think when you look at all these three options available, um, is the question that you need to ask. Obviously, if Nkunku is being thought of as as somebody who can thrive in a central role, which I think would be, again, a Havertz kind of mistake. He's he's played best with with a centre-forward, with a number nine, somebody who takes that kind of um, attention away from him and allows him the room to manoeuvre and, and find his runs and movement. But um, I think out of those two options, I would definitely take Kwaratskhelia over Liao at this point in time. But again, it, it just boils down to choice. I think it would be um, both players are very dynamic, very effective in the attacking third. Liao probably more explosive in what he offers, probably in terms of strength, better suited than Kwaratskhelia. But in terms of overall game, I think the Georgian is far ahead. So where do you go? And I think it's just a subjective matter. It, it relies on from one opinion to another, it'll it'll definitely change. But mine would be the Georgian over the Portuguese winner. Fair enough. And so as we continue down the road from a couple of players who have not exited the World Cup, uh, Jasko Gavardial, who is someone who is still in, who is still sporting his mask to, uh, you know, give himself a little bit of just a, you know, a physical edge, you know, I mean, going up against somebody in a mask who's defending, I don't know, that, that would, that would at least intimidate me just a touch, but how have you seen his elements? I know we had talked a little last time, maybe a little rash, a little quick to make the tackle things that, you know, in his domestic game that haven't really rounded out fully that you would be concerned about. Uh, maybe Rudiger with a little less control, which actually might have people very excited for some type of analogy like that. How have you seen game to game to game how his progression has been, particularly as I think not just us within the Chelsea sphere, but people are pointing out, particularly pointing out the Croatian uh, midfield and then also the defense as uh, two key parts for why they've been able to go this deep into the tournament. Yeah, I think it's been, um, again, I think just adding to what I've seen at club level. And at club level, he usually plays in a back three. So it's been interesting to see how the transition has been to go from um, a pretty 
adventurous system in terms of allowing him to make those runs, allowing him to be more progressive, uh, to to moving to a back four where he has to be absolutely assured about every step that he takes because one wrong move and he's going to let somebody in. So it's been great maturity on his part, which is which is all credit to him because I've been I've been pretty rash in terms of uh, my criticism about him. I've been I've been very upfront about his weaknesses and I still refuse to be moved saying that this is still different circumstances than playing for your club. You know, you're playing probably with a lot more adrenaline. You, you're obviously a lot more focused uh, than you are in other circumstances. The psychological incentives are, are way different than they would be at club level. So he's definitely playing at the kind of level that you you know that he can play at. There's There's no doubt that his ceiling is what he's displaying right now. It's the question is, can he do this week in and week out, you know, on a consistent level without making those mistakes? And I think I still have those doubts. But he's done his case no harm by playing in a back four and playing as well as he has. In the last game against Brazil, he was he was absolutely amazing. His box defending was really good. Um reacting to loose ball, making sure that he was getting his his leg, his arm, his head anywhere close to the ball. He's extremely impressive in terms of being a physical specimen. He's just very, very brave. Puts his body on the line. You know, classic centre back that you would, the qualities that you would want from a from a hard headed centre back. So he's delivering on all those things. But it's again, what about his concentration issues? What about his tendency to step out far too often? If he can channel that, if he can mold himself like Rudiger did, you know turning his aggression into a cohesive weapon and making sure that he can use it in the right sense at the right time, I think he'd be an incredible defender. But again, 90 million based on on what you're seeing from a World Cup against teams seems very steep. But again, that's 90 million for his potential. And his potential is very, very damn high. So it's again a big gamble. I, I don't know whether I would make that choice, but... I mean, he's done his case, Noam. I think he's been hes very, very good. Well, the question is, could you convince Red Bull to do a little bit of a double deal and try to get both done and, uh, you know, continue to do good business with the club who seemingly Chelsea have been able to get business done with, but definitely a name that people are looking at, particularly as they think about what happens with Thiago Silva, what happens with Cesar Spilicueta, that there is a still defensive elements even with uh, Trev Chalaba continuing to rise with the return of Wesley Fofana, that there'll be plenty of questions and uh, a need for maybe another defender uh, in this grouping. Hello, everybody. This is editor Jake jumping in to let you know that we're jumping to the second ad break of the episode and we will be right back. But speaking of potential players that, you know, again, Chelsea have been linked with before, we talked about in the last episode, but Hakimi and this incredible Moroccan side who has continued to defy the odds. And uh, if you're a neutral, it is uh, definitely at this point a, a, a fun story and a fun team to root for. I know he wasn't at his best versus the Portuguese team, Sam, but we're talking about him as someone who could come in and be a equal level uh, player or contributor from a Reese James standpoint, because when we think about what happens when this side doesn't have Reese James, and you think about how nice it is to have a Kukurea and Chilwell opportunity to flex in and flex out, you're raising the overall floor of the team. The question is still, could you get something done? And obviously, we mentioned last episode that some of that's down to maybe the 
unhappiness in the PSG camp and maybe you could convince something to happen. But just what did you see in, in this last match as we started to take a look at Hakimi as one of those players? Yeah, I think it's um, interesting in terms of a case study because he's playing in a completely different system. Um, Marco's numbers get very, very interesting when you look at, you know, they're just the shape and and the compactness of, of the blocks that they hold. I was so, so impressed with with just how organized they are. Obviously, you can see it when you're watching the game, but when when you see the numbers, you're like, wow, this is a different level of of discipline in terms of making sure that you're you're absolutely giving you know no space. You're watertight, um, and then I think he's the fact that he's delivering even in this system is a credit to to how well he's he's willing to adapt. He's um, not allowed the kind of marauding runs that you would want him to see at PSG and you would want him sort of to do at, at even at Inter Milan where he had a really good partnership with Romelu Lukaku. You know, he would he was trained by Antonio Conte to be sort of the first outlet for a counter-attack. He would collect in space, go ahead and then absolutely cross, cut back for, for Lukaku or Martinez to score. But those things have been few and far between in this Morocco side, especially because you know, they prioritize defensive work. You have to be organized and then you're playing against the big guns. So you can't be extremely expressive. But um, you're bound to have one of those games where where things don't go your way. And I think he had those games against against the Portuguese where defensively he was being a little uh, lax. He got dribbled past a couple of times. Um, you know, committed into ground duels, couldn't really win them. 50-50s were a little off. And and it's okay. Like, you know, in a grueling tournament like this, especially with the kind of effort that the Moroccans have been putting lately, I think they went to extra time against Spain, where a lot of uh, players were covering 14-15 kilometers. So it, it is definitely going to be, you know, a question of how physically ready are you. And a player like him who relies so much on high intensity and, and making those dynamic sprints from, from back to front, I think a drop in level is sort of it's natural. I didn't think there's anything to criticize there, but he's been vastly impressive. And, and like you correctly pointed out, if you want somebody as a Reese James replacement without a drop-off in quality, you would want definitely to be looking at somebody like a Hakimi. He's proving it for his country that he's got the right kind of qualities. He is, you know, a dogged player who's willing to sort of put in the kind of dirty effort that you need to, to get a, a 1-0 or, a, you know, what, these results that they've been pulling out. And and that's exactly what we've been missing at Chelsea. You know, I think we are far too lax in situations where you want to be absolutely solid and and not concede a lead. And I think this guy is is mentally ready to to add a little bit of character to that back line. So I think it's a it's a good match. But again, um, it's it's I think I need to go back and see how well he's done at PSG maybe in the second half of the season and make a more balanced assessment. Uh, at the end of uh, this season. All right. And then as we round out, you did have one additional addition, not to to use the word, almost the same word twice, but would you like to introduce the new individual that you would like to add to the list as someone that you're now keeping an eye out on as a Chelsea target? Uh, to be honest, I've kept an eye on him earlier because we've been linked with him. Oh, earlier, so you're, you're uh, holding out. You're holding out. You're holding out and putting him <laughs> on the list. You finally felt like uh, enough people got out of the list. We had time for it this time. Okay, no, let's no, jump no, in. No, I, I, do not, I, do not, I do not take any credit for this. 
I only started watching him because we were linked to him. I, I definitely do not want to take any credit for this because um, I think it was under Tuchel's time where we were looking for central midfielders and and two midfielders came up, uh, Seko Fofana and, and uh, Sofian Amrabat. So I watched both of them. And when I was watching Amrabat at Fiorentina, I was like, he's a good player. He's, he's got a very good level. Uh, tends to do well, but probably not the kind of guy who would offer you the kind of progressive qualities you would need in uh, a possession-based side. And, and based on that, I was like, look, it's a good to have, but is it a must-have? And and between those choices, I said, probably a good backup option or a cover option, but not starter material. But now he's come into this tournament and, and I think he's arguably been, for a lot of people, a, the player of the World Cup. He's been absolutely exceptional. Uh, in a Morocco side that has been, you know, sweating blood and tears, he's just absolutely stood up to be counted. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, when I was talking about Morocco, three out of their four defensive starters were out against Portugal at one point in time. They were struggling. Players were having cramps. Um, they were just hanging on with everything. And then this guy took on the armband and he's he's making the right kind of decisions. He's been near flawless in in every aspect of the game. You know, he's offered everything from collecting the ball from the defence, having the bravery to play out against sides like Spain and Portugal, which don't give you a lot of space. And uh, he's he's definitely brought other players into, into the right kind of positions. And he's also given you the defensive work that you need from a defensive midfielder. So, arguably been the most balanced, the most incredible player this tournament. And hats off to him, you know. That shows you the dangers of of the profession that all of us are in, in terms of like appraising players. You might see somebody for who they are, but the ceiling turns out to be something far more that, than you've exceeded, sort of expected ever. And, and credit to him, I think I'm very, very happy for him that his efforts have paid off in his country, becoming the first African nation to, to qualify for a World Cup semi. And he's deserved every single accolade that has come his way. Well, not... Not just uh, you know one of the individuals on the Moroccan side that you've highlighted. You did have a couple of, as we round out this episode, some honorable mentions that you wanted to throw in here as well. But you have another Moroccan individual that you think Chelsea should be taking a look at as well. Yeah, this is actually somebody that a friend on Chelsea Twitter sort of highlighted for me. Um, I struggled to pronounce his, his handle, but I will definitely add it in the description. So... He was talking about this player before the tournament saying, what do you think about him? And I went and I saw a couple of games and I was like, look, he's good. And then he looks like a solid young midfielder. And again, he came up um, in this Morocco side and like every other player he's delivered and he's been exceptional. Uh, Luis Enrique, after he saw Azadin Onahi, he was like, where did this guy come from? You know, he was absolutely amazing. I think you have to see his gestures to see that this was not, you know, the kind of sarcastic or patronizing kind of tone that you often see from Pep when he's praising opponents after thrashing them 8-0. This was genuine praise for for a really, really good player. And Unahi was was somebody that I think has been Morocco's standout player along with Amrabat. Um, he's, he's exceptional in terms of his application. I would say he's a Bellingham light, you know, and he's playing for, I think, one of the worst teams in France probably be available for like 6 million, 7 million before this tournament. And he's shown that he's he's got the physical and the mental capabilities to offer an extreme amount of steel in midfield. Again, in, in I think extra time, he covered around 13 or 14 kilometers against Spain. Again, delivered around 12 to 13 against Portugal. 
relentless machine and he's been linking up play from from defense and and putting it to the likes of Ziyech and Sofian Bufal and getting them into the right kind of situations so he's been he's been incredible i think what this morocco side has done is is you know they've got a plan and you've got players like amrabat and unahi who fit so well into it like when i look at amrabat for example does he fit into a chelsea perspective i don't know to be honest when you look at morocco who have so little space between their three midfielders when they're defending that it's slightly easier for a defensive midfielders to to not concede that kind of opportunity for a player trying to find space you you're able to be reactive you're able to close down those spaces you're able to win the ball back more often and it's it's a lot more to do with the side offering you that platform maybe in a space in a sort of uh, system where there are a lot more spaces where he has to press more often he has to be proactive in terms of reading the game can he thrive and can he deliver that i'm not certain but in this side both these players have been absolutely exceptional i don't know whether unahi can play in in a two uh, man midfield i haven't seen enough games to offer a very informed opinion on it but i think it's definitely worth keeping an eye on considering if you're going out to somebody like a bellingham if this guy is going to be available for somewhere around 30 35 after an inflated amount post the world cup might be worth keeping an eye on all right and so uh one other individual that we want to kind of put in here is a little bit of a again we we're talking about uh, we talked about attack during this we've talked about midfield we haven't talked as much about defense or defenders outside of Gravadiol but there's another name that you wanted to highlight as well Sam uh so Dan to be honest I haven't seen him play for for his club side I I've, I've just seen whatever I've seen um right now for the world cup and he's been he's been very very good Um so Joseph Juranovic is is been really good at right back. Um strikes me as somebody who's again very physically I think the Croatian side is arguably one of the best physically prepared sides in the tournament. Um I I think there was some statistics saying that they still haven't progressed out of uh, a knockout stage tie in in like normal time for the longest time. I don't know if it's since 2010 2014. it could be as far back as 1998 but they just they just like taking stronger teams to extra time wearing them down and then trying to steal a goal or or you know go to penalties and i think it's it's hats off to the kind of physical preparation the kind of um mental resilience that these players have and viranovic has been amazing against the likes of brazil against the likes of um south korea he's been he's been delivering some very strong performances um you know and not being somebody that that is sort of like defending on the back foot he's pushing on making sure that he's being proactive with his defending and offering the kind of um impetus that you would want from a strong right back so could he be a chelsea level signing at the age of 27 i'm not sure but for one reason i mean for this world cup i'm definitely going to go back and and watch a couple of celtic games see how he's performed in europe and I uh, hope to have a more uh, nuanced opinion on his abilities but when i look at his numbers in the world cup 75% of his ground duels won 68% of total duels so i mean those are incredible numbers for a defender if you're winning 3 out of every 4 duels against elite opposition then you definitely are a very very good player but is it a short sample size or is he performing similarly for celtic so definitely going to go back and, and give it a better look All right, and then maybe some final thoughts on just any of our Chelsea players who have 
either bowed out or are continuing. Again, we only have two of them remaining in the competition in Ziyech with Morocco and Kovacic with Croatia. Uh, we know that uh, Silva's gone out, Mountain's gone out, Gallagher's gone out. Um, maybe future Chelsea player Declan Rice has gone out as well. So any final thoughts on just the performance from the existing members of the Chelsea contingent? Hakim Ziyech. I, I will again go on the same tangent as I did last time and say, um, you know, Ziyech, it has to be, you have to look at Ziyech in a different light. He's, it breaks my heart a little bit because I finally figured out how to use Instagram after the longest time. And I've been watching his stories and and he puts up stories after matches from, from like praise from from fellow players, from from random people on Instagram, never replies to any praise from the Chelsea account, never never sort of puts up anything from the Chelsea account. So I don't know if it's out of spite, if he's had enough with the club and if he wants to leave. But it breaks my heart a little bit because there is really a good player there in terms of the amount of work he puts in. I think it's an extremely underrated part of his game. When he learns to apply himself and he goes on a consistent run, he's 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 a very very good skeleton key to have in in your in your closet. You can open up any locks with with the kind of application that he can bring you. Um, he's been unfortunate. I think he should have had a couple of more assists and goals that he's notched up this World Cup. But in terms of his work rate, my word! I mean, he's been. I mean, Tuchel should be sort of like thanked for the amount of wing back shifts that Ziyech has done in the past, but he's been dropping as, as deep as this fullback, making sure he's winning the ball back and, and, you know, booting it clear and then doing his attacking duties as well. I mean, he's been as instrumental as anybody else in, in the Morocco side to make sure that the unit triumphs over any individual that comes your way. And, and if you have a winger that's willing to, to offer that amount of support and then offer something in attack, if you can get six or seven games, you know, in, in a row, I think he can make a difference. He's definitely somebody that that we need to utilize more. Give him a second chance. Give him more, sec- you know, consistent chance with the new manager in and see what he reaps. I think he's he's definitely got the chance creation. He's definitely got, you know, the weapons. I, I keep going back to the Tottenham goal that he scored. I mean, those are the kinds of you know magical things that he can pull out out of a hat. And I don't see that level of magic from a lot of players in the past couple of months. So worth giving it a shot. We already own this player, you know. This is free. The best that you can do is give him games and and hope that you get a return out of it. All right. Well, we shall see because we are recording this ahead of the semifinal matches. And who knows, maybe Hakim Ziyech will add a couple more dollars onto that inevitable price tag that potentially Chelsea will be looking at trying to cash in against or potentially finding himself in a form that Graham Potter has to have a serious think about how he gets him going as the players return from the World Cup at the very tail end of December here. But Sam, as always, super appreciate all of the due diligence that you provided on a host of different players for us and for the listeners and look forward to our next episode, which will likely come uh, after these next round of semifinal matches so that we can take another look, hopefully not the last look at Kovacic and Ziyech in the World Cup. Absolutely, Dan. And it's been my pleasure. Uh, My UAE trip also is coming to an end in a couple of days. So I will be heading back home to watch the final uh, and then I'll obviously head off for a little bit of Christmas break. So um really happy to spend my festive time with you, my friend. It's always a pleasure. And uh, 
hopefully when when the chels are back uh, we will see some some extremely good performances and and turn into prime morocco well we shall see but sam again as always doing the business giving the people what they want just a host of information about the players but we hope you enjoyed this episode the london is blue podcast and until next time chelsea fans you know what to do keep a blue flag flying high